You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Participating in that this morning. And I hope it uh, compels you this week to continue to pray for those um, that we don't even know by name uh, who are suffering because of their love for Jesus. Well, we're in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. We have turned the corner and we are entering the final chapter of this little book. I'll be preaching verses 1 to 5 today. Justin will be preaching 6 to 12 next week. And then I'll finish out the book on the 21st. Please pray for our family. We're leaving after the second service today uh, to go on vacation My kids have been counting down to this day since near the beginning of the year. And so they are beside themselves with excitement. In fact, the littlest one, who's eight, who always says on Saturday night that she wants to come with daddy early on Sunday mornings, but fails to ever get up. This morning, I poked her at 545, and she was like, let's go. (laughs) She was up and she had her clothes on and she was ready to come with me. So she's very, very excited to go on vacation. We're in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 5 this morning. We're going to talk about genuine faith today. Chances are that throughout your day, whatever that day is, you exercise a certain measure of faith. You're exercising faith right now that the chair you're sitting in is going to hold you up for the duration of this sermon, no matter if it's 30 minutes or three hours. You're going to exercise faith when you exit this building and you enter your car, that that car will get you from point A to point B. You're also going to be exercising faith when you drive down the road that those other drivers know what they're doing. Okay? But we want to talk this morning about Genuine faith, as it's defined in the scriptures, faith as it pertains to a relationship with God. John tells us what that looks like, and we want to examine that this morning. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what the Holy Spirit writes through the Apostle John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Brother, we ask very simply this morning that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. What a privilege, what an opportunity, what an incredible honor to gather together this morning to sing your praises, and then to sit under the sound of your voice. God, that's what we hear every time 
we engage with the Scriptures. And I pray this morning that the same Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that resides within your people, the very Holy Spirit who inspired these words, would now illuminate our hearts and our minds and help us to understand what's been written here. But not only to understand, God, to receive into our hearts and minds the truth of what's written here, to be challenged by it, to be comforted by it, and ultimately through the presence and power of your Spirit, to be changed by what you've given us here. God, these words are a gift. Help us to receive it as such this morning, to give thanks to you for them, and Father, to be very attentive, not to what I might say, but to what you might say. God, we offer up this time to you as an act of worship in Jesus' name. So, John writes essentially four things about genuine faith in this passage. And like we've talked about several times before, you're going to see several different themes come up again that have already come up in the letter of 1 John. And that's because John's letter is not necessarily structured like Paul's letters. Paul tends to be more logical in flow. John tends to be more circular. So things that have come up before, he will bring up again. And perhaps those ideas will be deepened or we will be able to look at them from a different angle as John comes back to them. But John's going to use a word, uh, the word faith in verse 4, this morning that appears for the very first time here in this letter. And in fact, that word faith, the noun, doesn't appear at all in John's gospel. It appears as a verb, believe. But here is the only place where John uses the word. And so that word really colors everything that John's talking about in this particular text. And so John answers for us the question, what is a genuine faith? look like. Well, verse 1, John tells us right out of the gate that genuine faith is God-birthed. Now, I want you to notice what he says. He says, everyone who believes, present tense, everyone who currently has faith that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So everyone who believes, what does it mean to believe? That's really the essence of the question we're asking and answering this morning. To believe is essentially to receive. To believe is essentially to receive. To believe doesn't only mean a mental assent to the truth that Jesus is the King of all kings, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. It means taking the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished into our hearts and into our minds and receiving it as life-changing truth, receiving the person of Jesus. So to believe essentially means to receive. To believe what? John writes that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah, that he's the long-awaited king, the long-awaited rescuer who would deal with the sin problem that first erupted in Genesis chapter 3. Now, it's essential okay, that you and I read every 
word that John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The object of faith is essential. The object of faith is essential. We're not talking here about a generic faith in a distant deity. And we're not talking about some sort of faith in faith, a general belief in something or someone that enables you to say that things are going to work out somehow. No, we're talking about something very, very specific. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, we don't usually get into the tenses of things here because I don't know that it's always helpful, but here I think it is. When John writes that these folks who believe Jesus is the Christ have been born of God, it's in the past perfect, which means an act completed in the past producing results which still remain in the present. So, here's essentially what John is saying. Everyone who has experienced what's called the new birth, everyone who has experienced the supernatural power of God, bringing them from death unto life, from darkness unto light, these are the ones who possess faith in Jesus the Messiah. The new birth regeneration is prior to faith. John indicates here that being born of God is prior to our placing our faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, look, these are just echoes again of Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, with which John was no doubt familiar. John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, what's the word? Born Again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The final words of Jesus in verse 8 of chapter 3 indicate that the new birth is a sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. That it is not something you and I 
choose. It is not something you and I achieve. It is not something you and I attain because of our intellectual prowess or our power to deduce whether or not the gospel is true. Those who have been born of God exercise faith. There are a couple of implications here. One, if you trust Jesus, you have God to thank for it. Like Lazarus, Jesus has called you out of the darkness of death and into the marvelous light and life of his kingdom. Jesus has awakened you to reality. And that awakening is a result of his sovereign grace at work in your life. Two, if you have a family member or a friend or a coworker who has not trusted Jesus, you have the opportunity to plead with God on their behalf. Think about that for just a second. If it's those who have been born of God who exercise faith in God, then you and I have the opportunity to plead with God on behalf of those who have not experienced the new birth. That God would cause to happen in them what has happened in you and what has happened in me. Friends, that is an incredible thing. To be able to go before the Father and to say, Lord, would you save this family member? Lord, would you save this friend? Lord, would you save this business partner? Lord, would you save this coworker? This first verse of chapter 5 contains incredible encouragement for we who can think of people right now not know God. God might awaken their hearts. John writes that true faith is birthed by God. He goes on to say that everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born. Genuine faith is also marked by love. Now, here in verse 1, John directly connects the two. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This is really the first of three characteristics of God-birthed Faith. Love. And it's important that love is mentioned first because love is primary in the exercise of faith. It is the greatest of these things, as Paul said. And genuine faith, which is God birth, is always connected to love. They are essentially two sides of the same coin. You can see this in a couple of Paul's prayers for the churches. 
In in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then again in Colossians 1, verses 3 and 4, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. That's important. In both of those prayers, Paul points to faith in God and love toward the people of God. And isn't that exactly where John goes? He says, everyone who believes has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves all of those who have been born of Him. In verse 2, he goes on to say, and this is how we know that we love those who have been born of Him. We love God and we obey His commandments. John's essentially saying this, and we've heard it more than once in this book. To trust God is to love God and to love love others as God loves. Again, as John has already told us, these things cannot exist one without the other. John seems, in fact, in verse 2 to reverse things. Remember he said before that you and I will know that we love God by the love that we have for the brothers and sisters in the body. In verse 2, he flips it around and he says, this is how you will know if you actually love the body. You'll love God and obey his commandments. As if to say the two are interchangeable. They cannot exist one without the other. We will know We will know that we truly love the brothers and sisters he's placed around us when we love God and we keep his commandments. Now think about what John's saying. This is really important. It shows us that you and I love others best when we love God first. You and I love others best when we love God first. You and I do other people no good when we love them more than God or in place of God. After all, the reality is you and I are going to love something supremely. Something is going to sit on the throne of our hearts and something or someone is going to direct our lives from that central control place. The only question is who or what. And if God isn't at the center of our lives, then we will put something or someone else there. When it's another person, we find ourselves living for their approval, Or fearing their disapproval. In a sense, whether we want to admit it or not, they become our God. 
They become the one that we bow down to. They become the one that we compromise our convictions for. They become the one that we do things for in order to please them, even though we may know in our heart of hearts that those things do not please God. It's also important because John here shows us that we love others best and rightly by obeying God first. You and I are in a position to love others best when God's commandments are giving concrete shape to our lives and to our thinking and we're able to help other folks bring their own lives into line with God's best for them. You see, by this, by this, John argues that we are loving one another rightly as a church if, if we are pointing one another to God as our greatest treasure, <coughs> excuse me, Excuse me. And if we are helping one another live out God's commandments in such a way that we are all growing in holiness and in joyful obedience to Christ. By this, you and I also know that we are loving the world well, also. Does us no good? does us no good not to love the world, not to love God first, and not to obey his commandments in the way that we interact with the world. Those things should be supreme. They should be primary for us. The only way that we can accurately love and best love people, no matter if those folks are inside or outside the body of Christ, is by loving God first and putting his words, his commandments Genuine faith does that. Genuine faith treasures God as primary, and genuine faith elevates God's commandments, God's instructions, God's words. In that sense, genuine faith is not only marked by love, it's also marked by obedience. Look at what John writes in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, <clears throat> you want to know very simply what it means to live out a love for God, John tells us. This is the love of God, that we do what? That we keep his commandments. That we do what he says. In other words, the love for God that is experienced in the new birth, the love that, that, that gives birth to faith in us is expressed through willful, joyful obedience to his commands. In relationship with God, love for God is expressed in obedience. Now, Jesus himself said the exact same thing. 
In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said it again at the end of that chapter. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Now, I'm going to stop right here, okay? Because you and I hear the words love and obey in the same sentence. And for whatever reason, there's this disconnect that exists. Because loving and obeying don't sound like very relational things. Right? Being told that if we love God, we'll obey God almost almost sounds like we're being manipulated or like we're being sold a bait and switch, right? But I want you to see what John says. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and... And this is an important sentence. His commandments are not burdensome. For those who have experienced the new birth, for those in whom the Spirit dwells, for those who are exercising faith, the commandments of God go from being a duty to being a delight. We shouldn't think here of begrudging obedience. We should think instead of the obedience of love. The kind that says from the heart, Father, thank you for giving yourself to me in love. I give myself and my life to you in return. Fundamentally, we should think of Jesus when we think of what the obedience of love looks like. In John 4, 34, Jesus says these words, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Do you realize Jesus was nourished? He was nourished by obedience. He was nourished by doing the will of his Father. So the question that I ask myself, the question I ask you is this, is obeying the commands of God nourishing to you? Is it something that gives you life? Is it something that gives you joy? Is it something that gives you vitality? John's arguing here that faith that has been birthed of God feeds on obedience. The obedience of love. shouldn't think of this as begrudging. We also shouldn't think of it as burdensome. 
John specifically tells us that. Why? Because those with genuine faith are learning to obey in relationship with Christ. This is really, really important. Those with genuine faith are learning to depend on Christ for the resources necessary and to rely on Christ for the strength to pull the plow of obedience. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. I want you to listen to these words. One of my favorite passages. It's an incredible invitation from Jesus. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, now those three verses are fascinating. Because Jesus offers an invitation to come to him and find rest in him. But he also uses the image of a yoke. That's an image of what? Labor. Of work. So our relationship with Jesus is not a do-nothing relationship. Our relationship with Jesus is a relationship where he invites us into the yoke with him and he teaches us what it means to obey the Father. More than that, truth be told, he's doing most of the pulling. I've used this illustration before. <clears throat> like, back in those times, when they wanted to train a young ox to pull the plow, they would, uh, they would yoke a young ox up with, um, with an older, more mature bull who had been doing it for a long time, and the young ox would learn how to pull the plow, but who was really pulling the plow? The older ox, Right? And so when Jesus invites us into this yoke to learn from him, he's inviting us into a life of obedience, but he's actually inviting us into a life of obedience that he lives through us. Isn't that awesome? Why it's not burdens. Why we must, as John 15, 5 says, trust the vine. We must abide in the vine. We must be dependent upon him. Christ himself provides the power we need for obedience. You see, this is why, this is why we aren't talking about fake it till you make it obedience or, or fake it until you feel it obedience. We're talking about living by faith. Now, we need to talk about this precisely because Ours is an era that prioritizes feelings. Ours is an era that would tell you and I, if you don't feel it, don't do it. Some have called it the era of authenticity, where if it doesn't come out from within you, then no one should force it upon you. 
If you don't feel it, don't do it. But obedience is not born of feelings. Obedience is born of faith. There will be times in your life and mine when if we're all completely honest, we must respond in faith and obedience. We must trust and we must obey even when we ain't feeling it. Anybody experience that? Yeah, all of us. All of us have. Now, we don't want to stay there. Like, I I want to emphasize that, okay? We don't want to stay there. We want our feelings to follow our faith. We want our feelings to line up with our faith and with our obedience so that that our whole person, our thinking, and our feeling, and our choosing, so that all of us lines up with the beauty and the glory of Christ, and our obedience is a genuine yes, Lord, from the heart. That's what we want. That's what we want. But sometimes, by faith, and in spite of feeling, is where you have to begin. Now, that doesn't mean... We're talking about obedience in our own strength. We tend to think that doing something without feeling means fake it till you make it. Instead, obeying by faith gives us an opportunity, a genuine opportunity to own our weakness and to grow in our personal dependence upon the Lord. The call to obedience is not a call to fake it till you make it or fake it till you feel it. The call to obedience is is a call that should expose our hearts and should cause us to say before the Lord with all the honesty in our hearts, Lord, I'm not feeling this right now. Lord, I don't know what this resistance in me is all about, but Lord, would you expose it to the light of day and would you help me? You might pray something like this, Father, I see clearly what you're telling me to do and I confess my resistance. Give me the heart of Jesus whose very food was to do your will. Lord Jesus, I come to you to learn from you and to lean on you. You are the vine. I am the branch. Help me to trust that what you say is best. Holy Spirit, I know that you reside within me. And I know that it is your goal and purpose to produce fruit in my life. Help me right now to obey. To believe that what the Word says is good for me. And to have the courage to do what God wants me to do. Faith is, obedience is essentially just faith in action. What it is. If you and I go to the doctor, and we've got something going on with us, and the doctor writes us a prescription, and the doctor gives us a set of instructions, and says, look, if you want to get over whatever's ailing you, you need to do A, B, and C. 
If you trust what the doctor is telling you, what will you then go do? A, B, and C. That's what faith is. Faith enacted looks at the words of Jesus and says, you're the king. You know how to live life better than I do. I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to do what you say. And it's not driven by obligation. It's driven by awe. It's driven by love. It's driven by this sense that Jesus is not only right, but he's good. Good. And he loves me. And he'll never steer me wrong. Genuine faith is it's marked by love. And it's marked by obedience. And finally, it's marked by victory. Look at verses 4 and 5. John writes, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who what? Believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now watch this, okay? Why are God's commands not burdensome for those who have experienced a new birth and for those who possess true faith? Verse 4 gives the answer. His commandments are not burdensome for or because... Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Get this, okay? Through the new birth and through faith in Christ Jesus, do you know what God does? God overcomes our internal resistance to his rightful place at the center of our hearts and lives. God overcomes our internal resistance to his Kingship to his godness, which characterizes the entire world in rebellion to him. God conquers our rebellious hearts. That is what makes that's what makes obedience not burdensome. God takes hearts of stone and replaces them within us with hearts of flesh. We're told three times in verses 4 and 5, that those who have experienced the new birth and have genuine faith in Jesus the Messiah overcome the world. Now, I want us to be sure of something. I want us to be sure that we understand that it's actually God who is overcoming the world in us and through us. That's what John said. God's commands aren't burdensome because everyone who has what? Been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has faith, and a specific faith, faith in Jesus, the Son of God, overcomes the world. In other words, Christ who has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's Christ who has won the decisive victory 
over the powers of darkness through his death and resurrection. And it is in union with Christ and by faith in him that you and I share in his decisive victory. By faith, the resources of his victory are made available to us so that you and I too, in relationship with him, might be victorious over the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.10 to, quote, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. At that outset of that very famous passage on the armor of God, by the way, which is the armor belonging to God, You go back and look at the Old Testament and trace the theme of God as a warrior who fights on behalf of his people throughout the Old Testament. Many of the very images that Paul uses are mentioned there. So when, when you and I think about that passage, we shouldn't think first and foremost about a Roman set of armor. We should think about God, the victorious king, who wears the armor and fights for his people and when Jesus is done, do you know what he does with it? He says, here, you wear this. So essentially, when you and I do battle against the forces of darkness, we are putting on Christ. We are putting on our victorious king. And that's how we do battle. It's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he goes on to say, and put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor belonging to God. The whole armor of God. Now look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 assumes something. Verse 5 says, who is, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? Now that's present tense again. The one who is believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you know what verse 5 assumes? Verse 5 assumes that every single day, you're going to walk out of your front door, and you're going to walk into a war zone. Verse 5 assumes that every day, you and I are going to be engaged in this cosmic conflict, this, this unseen battle going on behind the scenes, playing out all across this planet, and even in our very own small little lives. This text assumes that the voice of the serpent is going to be whispering in your ear and mine, just as he did Eve, when you and I are faced with the choice of obeying or disobeying God. Did, did God really say that? Well, that's a fundamental choice you and I face every single day. And it's a choice that we find no help in making when it comes to the forces of darkness, the world around us, or our own flesh. 
did God really say that? And it explicitly states, this verse explicitly states that you and I will only ever experience victory over the world as we entrust ourselves to Jesus our King. As we come to live out John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. But as you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. our problem often is we tend, to, we tend to see our weaknesses and our failures much more clearly than we do the strength of Christ. Anybody? Yeah, me too. Me too. We tend to see our daily defeats with much more clarity than we do Christ's eternal victory. And again, the enemy, the enemy of our souls doesn't help there, okay? Like he wants to take all your failures. He wants to take all your defeats. He wants to take all those times when you listened to his voice and ignored God's voice, and he wants to throw them at you and say to you things like, you can't, look at you. You can't possibly belong to God. Look how weak your faith is. Look how quickly you crumble under temptation. You crumbled faster than Eve did in the garden. Look how many times you've failed and fallen today. God must, God must be so disappointed. He must be so disgusted with you. He must be ready just to wipe his hands of you and walk away. Everybody ever, anybody ever heard the voice of the enemy like that? Oh, yeah. And he's so good at that. He's so good at accusation. You and I must, we must, we must do battle with these things in a particular way. We, we must pray that our feelings of inadequacy and failure would lead us to trust in Christ more deeply and with greater resolve, rather than causing us to run from him in shame. You see, the enemy, the enemy would have our sins and failures and defeats to cause us to hide ourselves from our Savior. But those struggles, those defeats, by God's grace, are intended to lead us toward him. To lead us toward him in confession and to find him forgiving and to find him faithful, to pick us up when we're down, to dust us off and to look us in the eye and say, I love you. Love you. You and I can believe. I want you to hear me. You and I can believe that Christ wants to set us free from the schemes of the devil more than you and I want to be free from them. You and I can believe 
that when we falter, when we fall, when we end up flat on our faces in the mud of our own decisions, that Christ is close at hand. That Christ is close at hand to pick us up, to clean us off, to aid us and help us when we are trapped in sin or feel like we simply can't break free from the world's grasp. He is there. of obedience before the Father and his death for our disobedience were enough. Faith that Christ has won the victory and one day, friends, though this life is a fight, that victory will be yours. It will be. You'll be gone. You'll be home. You'll be at rest. You will fall at Christ's feet and you will realize that you're only there because he got you. Because he got you all the way through. There is great hope. Great hope in life with the daily battles of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time together in your word this morning. As we now respond in song, God, I pray that we would be able to sing your praises with genuine hearts of worship, genuine hearts of thanksgiving, Genuine hearts that are able to say this morning, God, thank you for making me your child. Thank you for giving birth to genuine faith in me. Thank you for the love that you're producing in me. Thank you for giving me the want to when it comes to your commandments. Thank you for overpowering my resistance, Lord. Thank you for the victory of Christ I share. By faith, Lord, help me to walk, not in defeat, but in the King's power. All of those things run through our hearts and our minds as we sing now in praise. Lord, we love you. Thank you for first loving us. Ask all these things in Christ's name.